Praise be to God for giving us such a substitute as we have just sung about in the words of the song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I hope that you would uh, spend some time this week meditating on the words of the songs we have sung in the service today. Uh, and if you want to understand more about Jesus being our substitute, in a particular way, the, so- the words of the song we have just sung would be a wonderful place to meditate on. Parents, do you remember what it's like having a toddler-proof home? Some of you are still in that season of life, uh, we feel for you. Uh, putting things away so that they, that they could not be dangers for your toddlers. Things that could not be easily dragged down and, and broken. Small things they could, that our kids could put in their mouths and be in danger of choking. Covers over electric outlets so they would not put their tiny little fingers and get electrocuted. We all understand the importance of having an environment that is safe for the smallest of our human beings around us. So they can be safe, so they would not hurt themselves, so they can flourish in their small bodies and grow slowly and surely into adulthood. We know the importance of having such safe environments. Have you considered that life in a church resembles similar needs for a safe place that those who are weaker in faith would not be exposed to dangers that could lead them to shipwreck their faith. Life in a church should also resemble the similar desire for safety so that the way we live our Christian lives would not cause weak Christians to fall into dangers that would end up shipwrecking their faith. One of the important realms uh, that must foster such a protection in a church is the realm of our conscience. One of the realms in which we must foster such a protection is the realm of our conscience. A conscience not only for ourselves, but also the conscience of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We must pay careful attention to how our behavior, how our attitudes affect not only our lives, but also the lives and the consciences of our fellow brothers and sisters. And this is what our passage uh, from the book of Romans will be about. I encourage you to open God's word to Romans chapter 14. I'll be reading from verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 23. If you are visiting with us, we are working our way through the, uh, this great epistle, the, uh, the epistle to the church in Rome. And uh, last week, we covered the first half of chapter 14. The chapter that, the part that we're reading today is a continuation of an argument that Paul started uh, in chapter 14, and really all the way in chapter 12. Let's listen to God's word as he is speaking to us. Here's the word of the Lord. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us, not, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying and asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word? Father, we are dependent upon you for hearing this word. Father, we pray that you'd speak powerfully, help me to proclaim it clearly, and help us to hear it well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter and saw that Paul is challenging us to foster gospel unity by refraining from despising or passing judgment uh, on others, on other believers in the church. In our text, in the passage we just read today, Paul is continuing to build up the case for gospel unity, but his focus now shifts not so much on passing judgment or not passing judgment, but on the role of protecting the conscience. We foster gospel unity when we foster protection for a healthy conscience. So, Paul's main charge in this text today is gospel unity fosters protection for healthy, for healthy conscience. Gospel unity fosters protection for a healthy conscience. The, the text we just read is uh, divided up in two larger paragraphs, um, and each of these paragraphs will help us uh, stay focused on, on how this sermon is divided. Two main points. Number one, decide not to be a hindrance to someone else's conscience. Decide not to be a hindrance to someone else's conscience. And second, consider what is at stake if we ignore each other's conscience. Consider what is at stake if we ignore each other's conscience. Decide not to be a hindrance to someone else's conscience. We see this in verses 13 all the way to verse 19. Verse 13 states for us what this text is about. And then rem the remaining verses flesh that out. Uh, this is why in verse 13 Paul says, Therefore, there's, that, that should clue us in that there's a, a conclusion he is bringing in. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Let me pause there for a second. That's a summary 
of verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us not pass on judgment on one another any longer. But, and now he moves on to what he wants to help us focus in our passage today. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The first part summarizes what has gone on so far. And the, the second part of this verse tells us what he's about to convince us of. And he's convincing us that we should so consider our way of life, not only for how it affects us, but also for how it affects those around us, particularly our brothers and sisters in the local church. The weaker Christians were engaged in judging the stronger Christians. And what was at stake when the weaker Christians were judging the stronger Christians? Their disunity. There was disunity. But when the stronger Christians were engaged in judging the weaker Christians and despising them, what was at stake in that situation? Not merely disunity, although that's true, but there's something else at stake, and that is the spiritual safety of the weaker Christians. How do, how do we see that? Well, Paul makes it clear that when Christians with stronger consciences ignore the weaker conscience of fellow brothers and sisters, it's not only unity that goes out the window, but also the safety of our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul makes it very clear that we as Christians can act towards other Christians in such a way that we become the stumbling block for other Christians, that we become the hindrances for the journey of faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this should alert us, brothers and sisters, members of this congregation, do you realize that you and I can become a stumbling block, a hindrance in the journey of faith of our fellow brothers and sisters? That's why Paul's primary call in this passage is to alert us to the danger that this can happen and to challenge us to commit, to decide that we would not let it become so. Now, how can we be a hindrance to others in the faith? This might be the first question you ask. How can I, how can what I do, how can what I say, how can what I, how I live my Christian life become a hindrance to the faith of others? The short answer is this. When you lead others to sin. When your way of life is a lure to lead others to act sinfully, you are a stumbling block for them. You are a hindrance for them. Now, it would be very understandable if I pursue or live in a particular sin pattern and my brother and sister or sister sees me and instead of confronting me, they're actually influenced by my sinful behavior and they follow in the same sinful behavior. That's very understandable, right? We get that, how our lack of vigilance in, in walking in, in, in what pleases the Lord could actually 
lead others and influence others to do the same. But that is not what this passage is talking about. The hindrance and the stumbling block this passage is talking about are those things that we live our lives in a way or in a desire to honor God. We have certain freedoms in the Christian life that we generally believe that honor the Lord. And yet for someone else among us whose conscience is different than ours, if those brothers and sisters act against their conscience because they see us how we live our Christian lives, their acting against their conscience is a sin. And now all of a sudden, what I think I have the freedom before God to, to live in a way that honors Him, my good behavior is now becoming a stumbling block and a reason, an opportunity for sin for my brother and sister whose conscience is different than mine. Do you understand the difference? That it's not just when I commit sin that I can influence someone else to sin and therefore I'm a hindrance and a, and a stumbling block in that way. That's very clear. This passage is talking about when I have a different level of conscience, freedom of conscience, and what I consider to be honoring to God is actually leading another brother or sister in Christ to fall into sin. The specific example that the Church of Rome was going through is food and drinking. The Christians in Rome were the believers in the church in Rome were, were a mixed batch. Most of them were Gentiles, but some were Jews. And to the Jewish believers, they were still holding on to the principle of what God revealed in the Old Testament, which called them to hold on to distinctions of foods as identity markers for the nation of Israel and as a means of living out their holiness before God. It was God who gave those decrees in the Old Testament. Yet when Jesus came and introduced the new messianic age, the promise age that the Old Testament prophets were pointing forward to, when Jesus brought the new covenant and instituted the new covenant that prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah foretold about, Jesus declared that true unclean cleanliness comes not from foods, but from the heart, from within. And in Mark 7, Jesus actually declared all, clean, all foods clean. But for many of the Jewish people, even the believers, their consciences were still bound by the Old Testament decrees. Because they have not yet allowed the fullness of God's revelation in the New Testament to affect their understanding and their conscience when it came to dealing with food. Their conscience has not been recalibrated to Jesus' teaching. So for these believers, eating certain types of food was considered sin for them. And Paul clarifies this in verse 14. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now you may wonder, how can, how can something not be inherently sinful and yet to be sinful for some people? 
How can something inherently by itself not be sinful and it may be sinful for so-and-so to do? The answer is the conscience. And Paul will bring this up again at the end of our text in verse 23 where he says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It is sinful because one goes against his or her conscience of what they believe is honorable to God to the best of their understanding of God's word. This reveals the crucial role of a conscience. And this is a good place for us just to take a few moments to define what is the conscience. What is a conscience? Well, here's how one theologian by the name of J.I. Packer put it beautifully and succinctly. Conscience is the built-in power of our minds to pass moral judgments on ourselves, approving or disapproving our attitudes, actions, reactions, thoughts, and plans, and telling us it disapproves of what we have done. He goes on to say, conscience is unique. It feels like a person detached from us often speaking when we would like it to be silent and saying things that we would rather not hear. We can decide whether or not to heed conscience, but we cannot decide whether it will speak. Because of its insistence on judging us by the highest standard we know, we call it God's voice in the soul. End of quote. Here's a, an illustration I might give uh, about conscience. Conscience is like, a, it's like a referee in the game of life. The conscience is not a perfect referee of what is right and wrong uh, because the conscience can have a wrong standard by which it judges. Our conscience can be wrong if it works by the wrong standard. But nevertheless, it is a referee. Let me give you an example when a conscience is working wrongly, uh, judging by the wrong standards. The book of Judges ends on this phrase that characterized the way the people of Israel were living their lives. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were living according to their conscience. But the standard of what was right and wrong, what was, what was right in their own eyes. Well, friends, our conscience can mislead us. Uh, just because you and I believe that something is right does not make it right with God. Our conscience also can be deadened. We no longer listen to conscience. This is why we must train our conscience to align itself with God's word. Actually, our conscience is so significant that when the Bible speaks about conversion, one means to experience God's salvation, the, one of the, the pictures, the most common picture it gives about salvation is that we are born again. We receive a new birth. And both uh, Will and Jane uh, spoke in, in their testimony of how what it meant for God to give them the new birth. We have, we have seen a testimony of that in their, in their story. 
But it's not only that God gives a new birth, a new nature inside of us. The Bible speaks about conversion, becoming a Christian, also by this other picture, cleansing the conscience. Let me give you an example. A few passages that speaks about conversion, about getting saved, affecting our conscience. Hebrews 9, 14. Speaking about the blood of Jesus. How it was so much better than the blood of animals. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When we place our trust in Jesus for salvation, the blood of Christ has a power to cleanse our conscience, to reset our conscience. Oh, friends, the cleansing of the conscience is such a big deal in our experience of salvation that actually the very act of baptism, which we will witness in just a few moments, the very act of baptism points to the cleansing of the conscience. Baptism is not only a symbol of our union with Christ, that we are united with Christ in his death, we die with him, we are united with Christ in his resurrection, we are raised with him to newness of life. Baptism also is a picture of being washed, of being cleansed. And what is cleansed is a conscience. Listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not a removal, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see how the conscience is, is a part not only of what, what happens in us when we are converted, when we're saved. It's also what is being represented, a resetting of the conscience through baptism. And if that's not enough, let's move on. There's a few other places where conscience shows up. The Christian life can be described as a life, that is, that in, a life in which a conscience is calibrated by God's word and is working well. Listen to the words of Paul as he wrote to the young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith work together. They're part of the same package of what it means to experience and, and live the Christian life. Oh, friends, do you see how the conscience is an important part of my life and your life as a Christian? The conscience is like this referee that blows the whistle when we go out of bounds. Each of us has a referee in us. And this referee should constantly be examining this word to see if it's blowing the whistle according to God's revelation, not according to our tradition, not according to our experiences, not according to our preferences, not according to what seems right in our own eyes. But this referee needs to whistle or blow the whistle according to God's word. And the encouragement this text gives us is protect this referee. Protect this referee. For yourself and protect this referee in the hearts and minds of others around you. Why should we 
protect this referee? Why should we not be a hindrance to others' conscience? Well, Paul gives us four reasons in this passage. The first one in verse 15, because it's an act of love. It's an act of love not to create hindrances to other people's faith. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. In other words, what should motivate us to protect the referee in each other's lives is the fact that we love one another so well that we care to make sure that the referee in other people's lives is working properly. This entire chapter 14 is, may seem like a new topic, may feel like it's, uh, Paul is moving on from love to the conscience, but it's not. Actually, speaking about the conscience is an application of what it means to walk in love. And loving others well. We love each other well when we protect the referee in each other's lives. Brothers and sisters, have you considered, have you considered how you are acting, whether, whether you're acting freely out of your own freedom of, of conscience, but have you considered how your freedom of conscience may not match exactly the freedom of conscience of your brothers and sisters? And a loving thing to do is to talk to them about your differences. To understand where they're coming from. To understand how it affects them. To understand how that what you think is right could actually have an effect on your brother and sister. So much of our unity or lack of unity could be resolved if we took the time to talk to each other and understand where we're coming from. And how the differences might affect each other. It's an act of love. Another reason why we should protect the, the referee of others and, and not be a hindrance to others is because hindrances can destroy fellow believers. We see that in the second half of verse 15. Hindrances can destroy fellow believers. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What a weighty warning. It's not just that you frustrate your brother and sister. It's not just that you cause him to have a bad day because you had a disagreement. He's saying here, watch out that you do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Oh, friends, how can we destroy another being for whom Christ died? When a person is lured to act against their conscience, they are acting against their internal referee and doing so over time can lead them to permanently dismiss that referee and that is a deadening of the conscience. And that leads to the shipwrecking of the faith. This shows how precious our conscience is. To go against it repeatedly puts us on the, puts us on the path of destruction. And when we lure others to go against their conscience, we are putting them on the path of destruction. A third reason why we should protect the referee of others because we do not want our good to be spoken of as evil. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. The freedom that we have, the freedom that we can enjoy to, to live our lives, to honor God in, in particular ways, they are a good thing. You can hold on to them, but hold on to them in such a way that they do not now become an opportunity to be spoken of as evil. Oh, friends, this is a caution for us that we can be right about our convictions, 
and yet we can be wrong about the way we go about them. We can be right about what we believe for ourselves before God, and yet we can be wrong in the way we live it out in community with other brothers and sisters. Well, friends, it's not enough to have the right convictions if you are treating people poorly in the process. So Paul says, do not ignore the referee of another so that your good would not be spoken of as evil. And the final reason we see here why we should protect each other's conscience is because of the values of God's kingdom. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Words, these people were debating about eating and drinking. I wonder what, and, and today now, we might laugh. We might sort of look down on the fact that, really, this was a big debate in the Church of Rome? They were having schisms and factions on the fact of what they should eat? I wonder what people will be laughing at us about in a century from now, about what are the things that we fought about or were divided about. But here's the point. It doesn't matter. The point is that little things made such a big disunity and division. And we thought that the kingdom of God is about those things when in reality we should be reminded that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, I don't know about you, but if you are pursuing righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, it's hard to keep fighting with others. It's hard to keep fighting with others when your heart is intent not to be right, not to protect your rights or freedoms, but to ask, Lord, what is your righteousness? What is your peace? What is your joy? Because I want to experience those in this circumstance. You ask those in times when you're in a fight and be disunited with others, the Lord will help you carry out that conversation a little differently than you might otherwise. And notice the confirmation Paul gives about pursuing these three qualities of the kingdom. He says in verse 13, whoever thus serves Christ, namely, whoever serves Christ with these, pursuing these three values, is acceptable to God and approved by men. Oh, friends, I pray that the Lord will help us pursue these values as we debate and consider our different convictions about various things in the life of the congregation. Instead of causing others to stumble or to be a hindrance in their walk with Christ, notice a positive command that Paul lands on. He says in verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Well, friends, Paul shows us here what, what is the opposite of being a hindrance to others. It's pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding. Friends, instead of insisting on our rights and convictions and thus become a hindrance, even about the things that we are right about, instead of insisting on those, how much nobler is it to pursue peace and helping others build up their faith in Christ. This is the alternative to being a hindrance and a stumbling block. Pursue that which builds others up in Christ. What would it look like for you to use your energies 
not to protect your rights or freedoms, but to build others up in the Lord. That's the first point Paul makes. Decide not to be a hindrance to someone else's conscience, but decide to pursue building them up. And the second point is a fleshing out of one of the four reasons that Paul mentioned because it's such an important reason, such a weighty reason. And that is consider the weightiness of damaging others' conscience. If we ignore what Paul said, and if we just bulldozer through with our freedoms, with holding on to our convictions, again, we're not talking about living sinfully. We're talking about living in a way that honors the Lord. We do it for ourselves, but we are careless about the way that affects other believers. Paul is holding on to and, 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 and spending a few more verses telling us, listen, if you're going to do that, let me just flesh out for you what is at stake. Verses 20 to 23, Paul says, do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now imagine, translated, if we went back in time, New Testament believers like you and I, and we went back and joined First Baptist Church of Rome, first century. And uh, Paul would be preaching that Sunday. And he's, this is what he's preaching. You, you would have to walk away feeling like you are telling me that I have to give up eating burgers for the sake of my brothers. You're telling me I would have to give up eating steak for the sake of my brother's faith. And Paul would say, yep. Because if you don't, you're destroying the faith of your brother and sister. Their eternity is hanging in how you cultivate the safety of conscience. Because your reckless careless, me only thinking, I have the freedom to do this in Christ, I can do whatever in Christ kind of attitude is creating an environment where genuine brothers and sisters who have a different conscience than you are being placed on a path of shipwrecking their faith. And Paul says, you do not destroy the work of God. What God has done in their lives to begin resetting their conscience, to cleanse their conscience, don't undo what God has been doing. So when you walk out of the service on a particular Sunday morning at First Baptist Church of Rome, and your practical application is no more burgers for a while, no more steaks for a while, not because this is legalism, because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ so much that I don't want to be a stumbling block for them. I want to give them the time to grow in recalibrating their conscience until their conscience gets recalibrated like mine in light of God's word. And they will not consider that to be a sin because I don't want them to sin. 
I would rather renounce my rights so they would not be led into sin. It's a quite a different kind of Christianity than you and I are often living. When the church is dismissed and we don't care about each other, we just go on with our way. We don't even know what bothers our fellow brothers and sisters. We might not even know where their conscience is on certain issues. Oh, friends, do you see the weightiness of corporate responsibility for one another? Do you see the weightiness of, of being mindful of what it means to really love each other, that we would renounce to some of our rights and good tastes for the sake that our brothers and sisters in Christ would flourish in the Lord, that they would grow in the Lord, that we would put anything and everything that would be a hindrance to their faith and walk with Christ. Paul says it is wrong to use your freedom to cause someone else to sin. It's wrong. It doesn't matter if you think you have the right to live in a particular way. And then Paul says it is actually good to renounce certain things so that your brothers and sisters can flourish in Christ. Oh, friends, if you have the freedom to honor Christ by your social drinking, let's just take that as an example. If you have the freedom to honor Christ by your social drinking, and yet you do it when you have a brother or sister around you who has been recovering from a bondage to alcohol, and that brother or sister looks at your freedom to drink responsibly in honor of Christ, but for him or her, that, that is not yet where they're at. They're not there yet. Then your freedom may contribute to bringing that brother or sister back into bondage and eventually shipwrecking their faith, potentially. Consider even the, the way we think about social drinking. Uh, the principle is, is to be applied in a host of things. And let me just say, it's much easier to state the principle than to apply it. It's much simpler to teach about it and let you figure it out how to apply it in your lives. But the point is, we should have a sense of corporate responsibility for the referees that each of us have in our lives. The warning of sinning against your conscience is so serious that Paul says, and he ends on this in verse 23, but whoever has doubts, first of all, he says a blessing in verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Uh, this means that we should live our lives to match what the referee inside us is telling us. We should live consistently in such a way that what we know and what our conscience is telling us is honoring to the Lord, we live up to it. Now, does that mean that, that we live perfect lives? No, we all know that we continue to struggle with sin. And we would hate for you to walk away thinking that as a Christian, you should no longer struggle with sin. We do. But we should so live our lives that what our conscience is bothering us about, we should seek to, to obey our conscience and, and fight against those things that we are convicted of. Paul says, blessed is the one who has no reasons to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So watch over your referee. Watch over your conscience. But also, the warning is, if you don't, if you sin against your conscience, look at verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Oh, friends, here's what is at stake 
if we act against our conscience, we fall into condemnation. And it's interesting that Paul in chapter 8 said there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, for us to, to act against our conscience, we put ourselves in danger of incurring guilt. Say, what, what, what if that's me this morning? What if I look at my life and like, I can tell you 10 things that I've been ignoring my referee, my conscience, and I've been acting against my conscience. So friends, is there hope for people whose conscience has been uh, seared or whose conscience has been uh, worked against? Oh friends, there is hope. Just like we've heard in the testimonies today, confess your sin, ask God to save you. Ask God to cleanse you. Ask God to restore your conscience. Oh, friends, Paul says in Hebrews 14, uh, 9 that the blood of Jesus can purify our conscience. He can do so again if you feel like you have acted against your conscience. No government decree can cleanse your conscience. But the blood of Jesus can cleanse and purify our conscience. So turn to Jesus. Ask him to save you if you've never turned to him with full repentance and faith. And if you're a believer who has acted against your conscience, ask the Lord to cleanse your conscience afresh. Oh, friends, Paul says in Acts 24, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This is a Christian life, living our lives in a way that, that is calibrated by God's word and is acting and living according to what God's word tells us. And when we fail to act appropriately, when we act against our conscience, not only turn to the Lord to ask for forgiveness and cleansing, but turn to another brother and sister, ask them to pray for you and ask them to help you keep accountable. Don't fight the sin, the battle with sin, on your own. But this is not just about your conscience. This is about the conscience of one another. This is why we should protect the conscience, the referees of each other. Because what is at stake is condemnation. Gospel unity fosters protection for a healthy conscience. Do not, do not take your freedoms lightly. Walk in a way that honors the Lord. But don't do that in an isolated way. Do that for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters here. Let's be considerate how our way of living the Christian life affects others. Let us be a place, let us be a congregation where weaker Christians are safe. Where we fill out the electrical outlets, put away the dangerous things that can be easily be dragged on and bring danger to ourselves. Let us be a church that is safe for Christians with weaker consciences so they can flourish and grow in Christ. That is love. That is what it means to be united in the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for revealing your word to us and helping us to understand what it means for us as a congregation to love one another in gospel unity by protecting not only our own individual consciences, but the consciences of one another. Father, we pray that we as a people saved by your grace 
would so love one another that we would renounce our own rights for the sake of seeing others mature and grow in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.